Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and to follow after him. And this weekend, that led me to a seven-year-old's birthday party. My daughter, um, God bless her, uh, is a lot better at socializing than I was at her age. So she gets invited to everybody's birthday parties, which is so great for her. Um, so complicated for my schedule. So uh, we live in, in Plano and nearby. The, the hottest birthday spot uh, in central Plano is this place called Nerfies. Real quick, anybody uh, in the room, the owner of Nerfies, I need to know if I'm bailing from this story to start my sermon. Okay, good, good. Um, if you know the owner, do not share this YouTube clip. Um, so Nerfies is my personal hell. Um, <laughs> You walk in, it's midday, because it's a seven-year-old's birthday party, it's midday, you walk in, the, 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 the space is pitch black dark, except for the copious black light strewn throughout the, the, this warehouse-style facility. Uh, so it's like a combination of like pitch black, but then neon paint, like all over the place. So your eyes have no idea what you're supposed to be doing. There's a strobe light shining into not one, but two disco balls, because I guess they're checking for epilepsy at the same time. There is extraordinarily loud music that I can only describe as impossibly inappropriate for a seven-year-old's birthday party club music, right? I'm like, is anybody listening to these lyrics? No, clearly not. I'm not even a prude, but my God. Um, <laughs> and then immediately you're pelted with these uh, Nerf darts because that's the whole business model. I mean, genius on their part, minimal upkeep and overhead. Because basically the kids walk in, they just pick out little Nerf guns, just pelt each other with Nerf darts. By each other, I mean the adults, because it's really fun to hit the adults with Nerf darts for 90 minutes. 90 minutes I was in this space. Uh, so uh, I came home, and of course Reagan said, how was it? And I cracked the same joke I did earlier. Well, we all have our cross to bear. That's kind of our, whenever we do something that is inconvenient but kind of trivial, that's kind of our, our little joke that we make. And yet, the, the call to bearing crosses is not a trivial one that Jesus places upon our lives. So we're, we're continuing in this worship series called Broken Glass and Brilliant Light. If, if you're just joining us, you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, um, we're taking a look for six weeks at each of the six stained glass windows that are here in our sanctuary space. And uh, this week we're looking at the fourth window, which is, you see on the screens now, if you can't see it where you're sitting, um, wherever you are, uh, this is the window that depicts the crucifixion. Um, and you can see in this window, there's the symbol in the upper right-hand corner of the of the communion cup and, and, and plate, the, the, the gift, the life that Jesus pours out for us. And then you see, of course, Christ on the cross and the life drained from him. And you see the witnesses standing there, perhaps his mother Mary and the disciple John as he uh, addresses them. And you see the uh, guards who had been mocking him but now look ashamed. And, and you see a centurion perhaps bowing in honor and reverence. And then far off, the furthest figure from the cross is actually the person who's supposed to understand God's work in the world. The priest, the, the, the religious leader, seems to be most distant, looking from afar. So today we're, we're going to talk about the cross, because it's, as we said earlier in the service, it is this universal symbol, and, and yet there's so many different ways to understand it. And I think there are some unhelpful ways to understand it. 
And I hope today to offer one that I know is helpful for me, I hope is helpful for you. Um, but more than just simply looking at this historical event that, that we, you know, we acknowledge and, and, and gather and worship around, um, there's something about Jesus that invites us into this as a present reality. And that's the part that I really want us to talk about today. So we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles in front of you or on your phone and you want to read along, Luke, chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. So what we're going to read is a, there's variations of the story in other Gospel accounts, but today we're going to read Luke's version because I liked it the best. Um, that's the only reason. Um, Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 9, it says this, Once when Jesus was praying by himself, the disciples joined him, which I'm sure he was so psyched about, um, gets away for one second to pray and they bother him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. He was that voice in the wilderness. Um, others say you're Elijah, and still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back to life. So they're naming these people who have died, these, these great leaders, John the Baptist being a very recent one, Elijah and the other prophets being further back. And, and they're saying that the crowd thinks that maybe you're this resurrected leader for them. And then he asked the disciples, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter shoots his hand in the air, because of course it's Peter. And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, is quite literally what that word means. You're, you're the anointed one sent from God. And Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell this to anyone. He said, the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed and be raised on the third day. And then Jesus said to everyone, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will save them. What advantage do people have if they gain the whole world for themselves yet perish or lose their lives? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the human one will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see God's kingdom. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. First, Let's talk about the cross and the implications it has in regards to, to suffering and even trauma and tragedy. Because again, I think the way that we talk about the cross, the way that we talk about the crucifixion itself, this, this event, this moment, the way we talk about that, the way we theologize around that, I think is very important because it can lead us down very different roads as to who God is and how God works. So let's pause there for a moment. Let's take a look at the cross. Let's look at the crucifixion, as difficult as that may be, and consider where it leads us. Jesus says the human one must suffer. The human one, he's referring to himself, must 
suffer. Now, I want to carve it with a scalpel today. I'm a big fan of nuance. I think it needs to make a comeback in the world, okay? Because I think that, unfortunately, we can have this very binary understanding of who God is and how God works as it relates to human pain or suffering or tragedy or trauma. Now, the first nuanced view I want us to have is between pre-knowledge and predestination, so Jesus is saying that, that he sees something coming for him in the future, that, that he knows his path leads through Jerusalem, and he knows that his path is going to lead through these Pharisees, these scribes, these religious leaders, and he knows that what it will mean for him is a cross and death. Now, just because God knows this, sending God's son into the world, does not mean that God says, ah, I'm going to invent crosses and torture devices, and through this, I will save the world. There's a difference that I'm asking us to see this morning. Just because Jesus knows the way his path is going does not mean that God says, I need crosses to do my work in the world. Do you hear me, church? The cross asks us to have a nuanced view of trauma and suffering. There's an unhelpful binary where we either view that God is the cause of all and everything. Maybe you have been told that God is the cause of your abuse or your trauma or your tragedy. I'm so sorry. On behalf of dudes, because it's always dudes that look like me standing in a position like this who have told you that your abuse, your trauma, your tragedy was the handiwork of the God who loves you. I'm so sorry. But then the other end of that spectrum is that, that we pretend as though God asks nothing difficult of us ever. That God is the God of sunshine and rainbows and kittens and puppies. That God wants you to have every rich in this life. That God wants you to pray and then find money in your bathroom wall like Joel Osteen. <laughs> when we see the cross, we begin to see this nuance emerge. First, the cross is not God's invention, it's ours. And my friends, it is time that we owned that in the Christian story. See, the problem with with, uh, us believing that that God saw no way to possibly uh, make the world better except with a cross is that it sort of takes the onus off of us, takes the responsibility off of our shoulders. Here's what I believe, is that we have to reconcile the reality that perhaps the cross was not and continues not to be necessary. It's just that we demand it be a part of the story. God embraced us in love. That was God's choice, that God would send God's only son. God embraces us in love, and our choice, our response, was to place God's body on a cross. If that makes you uncomfortable, good. That's the story that we have to look dead in the eyes and recognize. That God's choice was loving embrace, and our choice was placing God upon a cross. God's world and ways are not violent. I will say that again. God's world and ways are not violent. But God steps into our violent world and ways to offer another path we are so often unwilling to take. We can't envision another way. And so we still choose crosses far too often, which is why I think it is hard, why I think as hard as this image is to see, it's important that it's part of the story that our windows tell because it's honest, because it's true. The question becomes, my friends, is when we look at the cross, when we look at the crucifixion, will we confine it and define it as simply one event? There was just that one time that we chose a cross for a man who did not deserve it. 
Or will we see that this crucifixion is an ever-present reality in the world around us? Do we see the ever-present crucified Christ? When we see, let me put a fine point on this, my friends. When we see the passion of Jesus Christ, do we also see the passion of Tyree Nichols this week? My friends, if you don't know that name, you need to look it up when we leave here. When we look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, do we see the crucifixion of Tyree Nichols, who was unjustly murdered at the hands of the state. 2,000 years later, we are still telling the same story. If you're someone who doesn't have to live with that ever-present threat in your life because of the nature of the color of your skin or the class that you occupy in society, I will challenge you to watch the video as painful as it is Look at the crucifixion because it is an ever-present reality for people who don't get to choose to pick up crosses. They are placed upon them instead. We don't just get to be the people of sunshine and rainbows and kittens and puppies. God asks us to step in a world that is violent, to look at the crucifixion, and then to say, what are we going to do about this? Because it didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. It happened this past week in Memphis. The cruciform Christ calls our eyes to look upon the bodies that bear the weight of our sin. Hear me clearly, church. I am speaking faithfully this morning. The cruciform Christ calls our eyes to look upon the bodies that bear the weight of our sin, to confess, to repent, and to believe the gospel of good news for the broken and abused. You know what the good news is? It can be different. That's the good news. Stop feeling powerless. Stop drinking cynicism by the gallon. It can be different. There doesn't have to be another Tyree Nichols, but it means we're going to have to look at it long and hard and allow it to disrupt us, those of us who do not get disrupted by this. It means that I have to live differently in my safe little Plano bubble where my biggest problem is going to Nerfies on Saturday. We have to allow ourselves to get disrupted. We cannot confine Jesus' cross to 2,000 years ago. We have to see it happening this past week in Memphis. Do you hear me, church? Are you with me, church? Now, here's the really good news is where we could only envision a tool of torture and death, God envisions redemption and life. Here's the nuanced view. God is not the cause of our tragedy, our trauma, our abuse. And yet, God says, I will not allow those things to have the final word in this world or in your story, that there is something called redemption. It is like the reason I am a Christian is the idea that God can take anything, did I say anything, anything, and God can use that for something that is filled with meaning, filled with purpose, filled with good for us or for others. Redemption says that it takes everything we have to offer God. Even when we place God's body upon a cross, God offers eternal and universal salvation in response. That's the concept of redemption, that nothing is ever so evil, so bad, that God cannot find some way to break it, to make it lose its power, and instead to create something powerful and good in its place. By redeeming a cross, God's love makes clear that the weapons that seek to smother and break us do not have the final word. And that truth, living in that truth, allows us to step with courage into the next call that Jesus has. Jesus doesn't just give us truth that feels good. Jesus then says, take that truth and let it take you places. Here's what he says next. He says that we have to pick up our cross, and not just once, not just 2,000 years ago, but daily. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. 
If you want to live this kind of life, that's what it requires. It's not just a historical act or a moment, but a way of life that we are invited into, not as a punishment, but rather as an opportunity to change things, to practically change things in this world for good. He talks in this language of kingdom and empire, Basileia, he says. I'm, I'm coming to bring a Basileia, a kingdom, an empire. And he talks about himself, identifies himself as the anointed one, the leader of this revolution against the colonialism of Rome. And yet he sees the way to usher in this kingdom, this empire, this Basileia, is not through the same violent ends that establish the powers and principalities that currently rule. Because again, we think we have to use crosses to get there, right? And Jesus Jesus says, no, there is a different way. Instead, the path is through carrying the cross ourselves, not by putting other bodies upon it, but by taking it upon ourselves, by living in service to the lowest and to the lost, to willingly embrace suffering so that life might be more righteous and just for others. I don't think, Joel Osteen, that God wants me to find money in my bathroom wall. I think God wants me to find it in my wallet and to give it to the poor. That's what I think Jesus is calling us to. He, he calls us to choose the hard thing. Picking up the cross is not an easy task. It is heavy. It digs into your shoulder. It's painful. It leads to suffering. But it's the right thing, even though it's the hard thing. And Jesus always calls us to the hardest thing. It's why when a young man who has everything he could ever need and who says, I'm such a good boy, aren't I, Jesus? I follow all the commandments. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, give all your money away to the poor. Sell everything you got. Give it away to the poor. Because I don't care how good you think you are, because your community is literally starving to death. So tell me again how righteous you are. You want to be perfect, sell all you have, give it to the poor so they can eat something tonight. And what does the rich man do? He walks away sad. Because he can't give up this one thing that draws him like a moth to the flame. He can't give up this money and this power and possession it has over his own soul. That's why Jesus tells the priest to choose the hard thing when he confronts them and says, I don't care how holy and clean and perfect you think you are. You sit inside a pristine temple while there are people outside who are diseased and dying, who don't feel like they can come in because you've told them they're unwelcome, because you've told them their diseases are a result of their sin. I want you to go out there. I want you to touch them. I want you to make yourself unclean. I want you to learn their name. I want you to learn their story. I want you to carry their bodies into the healing pools. I want you to carry them inside to the temple where you say God's presence is because guess what? It's not actually there. It's with these people. And what do the priests and the religious elders do? They say, no, we're going to kill you instead because they can't possibly embrace the sickness and the uncleanness because they're so dang holy. It's why when he talks to Peter in this moment and Peter acknowledges that he's the anointed one, the one who will bring revolution, the one who will establish a new empire, he says, great, Peter, are you ready to die? Because I'm going to die next week. Peter says, what? What are you talking about? We're just starting this thing. There's like 12 of us, dude. You can't go now. We've got a revolution to run. He says, Peter, you don't understand. It's a different kind of revolution. You think that you came to bring a sword. I came to bring a different kind of sword. And I came to build a different kind of kingdom. These are hard truths that Jesus invites us into. Jesus asks us to do hard 
things because doing the things that seem easy or natural, it just continues to allow us to live in a world that doesn't change. And my God, it could change. Picking up a cross means choosing openness and generosity and vulnerability in a guarded and greedy and violent world. And when you live in a guarded, greedy, and violent world, it is so easy to live guarded, greedy, and violent. But Jesus tells us to pick up a cross that feels more open, that feels more generous, that feels more vulnerable than may feel comfortable in this moment. But here is the best news of all. is that we don't do this for our own reward. In fact, the only crown we may ever wear is the same one of thorns that Jesus does. But here's the good news, is that Jesus says we might just get a glimpse of heaven on earth. Did you hear him share that at the end of the scripture? It's one of those blink and you miss it kind of lines. He says, I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see God's kingdom. Now, he's not talking about this sort of eternally realized, like, earth is officially fixed, perfect forever kingdom. I think what he's talking about is those thinly veiled moments, those moments where the curtain tears, where the tissue paper thin reality between heaven and earth meets, and where you get to glimpse just for a moment what it's like for God's love to be fully active in the world around us. Now, here is where I, if I was a good preacher, I would share a really compelling story that might even make you cry, that describes what it's like when that tissue paper thin moment happens, but instead I'm going to do something more vulnerable and more open and more scary, and I'm going to be quiet for a moment. I'm going to ask you, wherever you are, to close your eyes. And I want you to go back to a time when you felt that tissue paper thin heaven meets earth moment, could be big, could be small. Who were you with? Was it last week? Or 10 years ago? There's a reason you still remember it. You can open your eyes. My friends, we were not placed upon this earth to build up our bank accounts or to buy a 15th home. You're not Pharaoh. When you die, no one's burying your gold with you. You don't get to take it anywhere. We were placed upon this earth to lead lives that have meaning. And the meaning is this, at least it is for me. I am in love with heaven meet earth moments. They're intoxicating. There's nothing like it. When openness and generosity and vulnerability win the day and something changes. Jesus says that's what happens when we pick up the cross. So my friends, pick up the cross. It wasn't just 2,000 years ago. It's today. And it's painful. And it's hard. 
and it means heaven can meet earth. May it ever be so. Amen.